Welcome to Drop Everything Podcast number 26. I'm your host, Dan Holzman. You might know me also as one half of the team Raspini Brothers. So it's always a pleasure for me to talk to other juggling teams. This team I'm talking to today is made up of Jonathan Root and Bill Berry, better known as Team Root Berry. We talk about their past, their present, and their future, their creative ideas, their travels, and much, much more. But before we get to that, let's thank our sponsors, starting with the IJA, the International Jugglers Association. This is a fine group of jugglers who promote juggling in all its forms, including a yearly festival this year that will take place in El Paso, Texas. So find out about the IJA at juggle.org. I also sponsor this podcast with my own personal coaching website, braindrizzles.com. If you're interested in becoming a professional comedy juggling performer, check out my services at braindrizzles.com. All right, let's talk to Jonathan Root and Bill Berry. Let's talk to Team Root Berry. Very excited to welcome to the Drop Everything Podcast, another juggling team, Jonathan Root and Bill Berry, Team Root Berry. Welcome, guys. Hey, Dan. Thanks. It's an honor to be here. And you guys are calling in from two different places. Where, where, where am I finding you today? I am north of Dallas, Texas, in a city called Prosper. I am in Tampa, Florida right now. And is this something recent? Uh, I always thought you guys were sort of very, like, lived in close proximity to each other. Is this a new development? This has been, we've lived apart in, in separate states for a number of years now, probably three, four years now. Yeah, we found that uh, we're flying to the majority of our gigs, so it hasn't really impacted us too much at this point. And what kind of practice schedule do you keep up, Jonathan? Is it something where you just meet, meet at the gigs and practice there, or do you kind of make special times to meet when you're not working? Because we perform on cruise ships, we spend most of our time while we're on board being able to work together on comedy and we've started, we've started doing some more trips and stuff. Uh, we went and trained in Arkansas for a week and just worked on some new stuff. So sometimes we do, we do adventures where we have no performing. We can go into a quiet space and work on new stuff. And is that something that you feel is sort of an important part of keeping a team together to always be working on new material? Bill? We, we are definitely trying to work on new material, but what we're finding now is it's far less about the tricks and far more about our characters and our presentation. So in that note, when, when, even when we're apart, if we go and we, we, we've both been doing open mics recently, we both do um, infrequent, just kind of in between our regular contracts, solo gigs, which is growing us both a lot. I'm working on a character right now, and these are just things that are helping us develop towards the next level. We inevitably your technical prowess will decline over time. And as our juggling and, and technical tricks are going down a little bit, we're trying to ramp up more in the characterization and comedy writing department. Do you guys consider yourself jugglers who are do comedy or comedians who juggle? At, at this point, I would say we're comedians who juggle. I, I, actually, let me, let me rephrase that. I would say at this point, we are a prop comedy act. Yeah. Yeah, we always called our act like a sitcom with props. It was a lot about yeah. the character development and the sort of interrelationship between the two characters. Now, in your act, do you think there's one like alpha male and like sort of a straight man comedian, or do you feel as if you're both sort of carrying the comedy ball? What do you think about that, Bill? Jonathan's definitely the lead. He's always been the lead. When we first started, the first year we performed together, there was only one time I ever even said a word to the audience, and it was only hello, and that was at his prompting. So I've come from a very, very shy, introverted performance place, and yeah, I'm very thankful to have had the opportunity to develop, because my development was very slow in that, in that department. Well, Bill, what were you doing before you teamed up with Jonathan? Were you involved in theatrics at all, or performing, or did you have a whole other sort of life going on? I was working four part-time jobs, actually, when I, when I started uh, working with Jonathan. So I, I'd just gotten out of high school. I was still working my high school job, which was an assistant manager at a pizza place. I was working retail at a Mervyn's. That was my morning shifts. And then I was also working at the California Center for the Arts in Escondido doing a tech theater internship. So basically, basic lighting, basic sound, gripping, 
um, on deck work, load ins, load outs for various shows. And then they also had a banquet center where I would go over and I would do food service banquet service across those four positions. And I was basically not getting any time off. I was running myself into the ground trying to do that. But I was pursuing a tech theater sort of uh, direction. I was thinking more about being backstage. And when did juggling come into your life? What was the first time you remember experiencing juggling, either live or on TV? Oh, that was in fifth grade. A guy came to our school and did a week-long. He would teach people how to juggle. He did a show on Friday, that, that kind of thing. I, I don't remember his name. But, uh, yeah, it was uh, one of the jugglers who was going around schools at the time selling, selling props and whatnot and teaching the kids. So I never really thought it would turn into anything. But Did you learn at that time then in the fifth grade? Is that when you learned to juggle? I did. And I was too shy to actually talk to the guy or talk to anyone. So I, I, I slipped in and I grabbed one of the little slips that he had that you could order equipment from him. But I never actually talked to him. I just grabbed one of the slips and slinked away and ordered my props through that, had my mom attach a check to it and then turned in the envelope. And I got some balls and clubs and rings and basically learned just the very basic cascade patterns with the three different props. And that was my beginning. Was it like a hobby right away? I mean, was it already fascinating to you right from the start? Yeah, definitely. It, it took me about two weeks to learn because I didn't have anyone instructing me and the juggling for the complete klutz. I got that book and pr pursued it not very far. There wasn't YouTube. There weren't videos. I could throw it under my leg and behind my back. I was better than everyone I knew. So I think most people when they learn to juggle, it's kind of like they learn the cascade and they go, check, I learned to juggle. And that's exactly. about, all as far as they want to go. So what about you, Jonathan? What were you doing and when did juggling come into your life? Uh, I actually learned to juggle from a clown who was performing at uh, an after party for my high school graduation, and she just taught me the basics, and I, again, like Bill, and I think everyone who gets into it, thought that I was pretty good, and then <laughs> a few years later, I met Bill, and we actually started meeting together in a park. And he would pass in one pattern, and I would pass in another pattern, and we just couldn't figure out why it didn't work. Um, one of us was doing every others. One of us was doing others. I'm sorry, uh, the solid pattern. Everybody's. Yeah. And so we finally figured it out, and then actually it, it became much smoother at that point. <laughs> yeah, that's a hard one to kind of get those two timings together. If no one shows you, it's, it's really difficult. And back, what does this maybe in the – Early 80s, or what, what, what time frame are we looking at here? This is actually in the late 90s. We late started. 90s? God, I'm really dating myself, aren't I? Because I learned in 1974, <laughs> so uh, that's uh, I graduated in 77 or so. I was born in 74. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for that. Thank you so much. <laughs> so you guys, you got together just first as friends. How would you even kind of meet up in the first place? Prison. Was it prison? Yeah. Yeah. What's the real story, Bill? Give me the real story. That was Jonathan's. Uh, what was that? So, so did, you, did you see each other across a park and your eyes met? That was the passing zone story. Their, their eyes met across a gym and it was love at first sight. <laughs> how, how about you guys? I listened to that podcast. It was very informative. I liked it. Yeah, that was fun because we all got to be in the same room. This is a bit tougher because uh, it's hard to sort of prompt one guy or the other, but I'm kind of learning as I go. This, this podcasting is sort of a new, a new area for me. And, uh, well, I, I really I really appreciate that you're doing this. I listened to the Erin Stevens one today and just just to hear what she's doing with the IJA and all this stuff because I really don't think most people understand what goes on behind the scenes and for the board members. And you know, it's easy to say, Oh, how come they're not doing this? And as she said, go do it. If you have an idea, go do it. And I, I was yeah. I mean she's doing great work. Well, for a while, there was sort of like a them versus us mentality, like the board is somehow doing something against juggling or for themselves. And all these people are basically volunteers. Yep. So there's really no agenda of taking over juggling or taking over the IGA. So I'm glad people who listen to that can have a more positive feeling about the IGA and this new direction they're going in with the regional competitions and trying to really become more international. Yeah, I think I think that's really neat. I mean, just we've we've done some South America stuff on cruise ships, and she's not kidding. The guys juggling on the side of the streets are are, are solid jugglers. I mean, like the, the technical skill is no joke. 
with the advent of the internet, they're, I mean, because people can just share videos, the level has, you know, just gone through the roof. Well, like we were talking about before the podcast started, there was really no resources, especially when I started. We had a couple of books. I saw Chris Cremo on TV, and that's the only juggler I saw for about four or five years. So I really uh, right. learned in a vacuum, especially like Brazil seems to be a place. Have you guys traveled to Brazil? We've been to Brazil, um, <laughs> but it wasn't the most positive experience. Um, <laughs> we we had it took us a month and a half and a lawyer to get to, to be able to perform on the cruise ship while the ship was in cruising around Cape Horn. We went in a city in Brazil. So, so you're on the ship, so that you've been contracted on the ship. At what point yeah. did you realize you couldn't perform? Well, it was actually all of that stuff happened prior to us getting on the ship. But just because you go into Brazilian waters, you have to you have to have a work visa. Mm, even on the ship. Yeah. And even though we didn't perform in Brazil, like while we were in Brazilian waters, it took us it, it took a, a month and a half to get that all settled. And now I understand it's a much more simple process, but yeah, that was probably eight years back, so. And you've seen the guys, though, uh, juggle at the stop signs or stop lights? Yeah, it's incredible. Who books that gig? <laughs> we, we saw more of that in Chile, actually. We saw a number of really, really talented streetlight performers in uh, Chile. They would come out and do just a 30 or 40 second routine. There was a three ball juggler there who I, I never got to meet him, but he was doing some phenomenal work. And when you guys started, what do you think about, like, juggling as a career. So obviously it was just a hobby at first. At what point did you say, let's do some shows? I had started performing at birthday parties and I was doing clown work. And I even, if there was a character in the 1990s, I dressed as it. Mm. So I would go to birthday parties as Elmo. <laughs> you ever do Super Mario? I never did Super Mario. I did, I'm not too proud to say, Barney, the Teletubbies, Batman, Spider-Man, Buzz and Woody. And I actually convinced Bill that this was a good idea. And we have some amazing stories from that, from that time period. Um, one time I was, I was chased by some seedy-looking characters coming out of an Elmo party. And it never occurred to me that they might have just wanted to tickle Elmo. So you were dressed as Elmo, and some ruffians, some hooligans, accosted you, and were you actually chased down the street? I think they were trying to steal my money. Oh, okay. <laughs> as if they thought Elmo was uh, loaded at that time. Well, you know, Elmo, Elmo, Elmo's rolling in the dough. <laughs> sure, sure. So you talk, you talk uh, Bill into it. What do you think, Bill, when he suggested that maybe you dress up as a character and, and do birthday parties? And how did you fit that into your schedule? So the backstory on that was... Jonathan and I met through a local agent who I had contacted because I was curious to see if you could actually make any money doing juggling. So I was literally just cold calling agents out of the phone book. And one of the agents figured out what I was doing and just said, here, talk to, talk to my juggler. And Jonathan and I played phone tag for a few months and finally met up. And then we juggled together for a few months, got to be friends. And then my unique situation was that uh, my mother had come into a small inheritance and she was going to move to a retirement center, and I wasn't able to go. So I basically was given notice at, uh, I guess I was probably 19, that I had one month to figure out where I was going to go. So I contacted Jonathan, who was also living on his own at the time. He was renting a room from a Chinese family. And we ended up getting a studio apartment, very, very small little place in a really bad neighborhood. And I actually quit all four of my jobs, just cold, and became an entertainer which is probably not the best way to go about it. But I really had nothing else going, and I was working myself to death with the four jobs and getting nowhere. So I said, I guess I'm going to be an entertainer. And I, he got me twisting balloons and doing character work. My very first gig ever was Darth Vader at a bar mitzvah, and I was supposed to have a sword fight with a kid. But when I walked into the room, it was dark, and there was DJ lights. And if you've ever been in a Darth Vader costume, it's like wearing welding goggles. You can barely see when it's bright out, let alone in a dark room with flashing lights. And uh, the kid had one of those pretty heavy-duty lightsaber toys and proceeded to beat the living crap out of me and beheaded me, just like in the movie. 
And that was nice because for the moment the helmet was off of me, I was actually able to see where I was in the room and whatnot. And yeah, that that was my first gig. It was pretty bad. Nice. <laughs> he, was, he was traumatized from that and, and didn't do costume work for other than with, with me. He didn't do it for a couple of years after that. <laughs> Welcome to showbiz, Bill Barry. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I remember one of my first jobs, I was in this tent at like this small carnival, and there was nobody there coming to the, the where the tent was. So I thought, I'll juggle out front to try to attract some attention. So I'm out front juggling, and the woman goes, don't juggle out here, because they won't pay to come in if they see you out here. <laughs> I go, well, they're not coming in anyways, so... <laughs> tired old belly dancers and me and it's just a... isn't that isn't that the story of our lives tired old belly dancers <laughs> well it's, it's a very similar story that like for the raspini brothers i mean i was a grill cook and barry was a uh, a fork lift operator so at a certain point sometimes it's like this is such a wonderful opportunity we don't realize it at the time but the fact that juggling enters our lives we learn to juggle put a show together it changes the whole direction of our lives, and I, absolutely for the positive, I believe. So, and and the the flip side of that is people people see what the Raspini brothers did, and they go, oh, that's that's their baseline. They don't see all the work that went in. Bill and I talk about how we're we're surprised anyone watched during the first seven years because you're learning not only learning the skill of juggling. You're learning comedy and all that, and and it's it, it takes time. It's not something that comes overnight. And I've heard people say that juggling and hand balancing are some of the hardest things you can possibly pursue. The number of hours you'll put in for the amount of usable, performable content that you get out is is extreme for those two disciplines. And I, I don't hand balance, but I do know that juggling takes amazing amount of time to develop. Well, the thing about juggling is that people really don't know juggling. They know if you drop. But I do find that if you can come out and do even basic juggling, it's not the same like basic singing. Like if you came right. out and were like, Mary had a little lamb, little lamb. People would go like, that's bad. Boo, you're a bad singer. But if right. you just come right. out and do like a, a three, three, ten, or six clubs, as long as you can do it decently, that satisfies most people. True. Right. And I think that we were able to start kind of more in a vacuum that nowadays you get more exposure right away. So how long was this sort of incubation period? Did you think it took you a few years before you got like your first big break? And what was that big break? No, I would say it took us, we probably started in 1997 and then we did our first audition in 1998 and booked a three-year gig that led us that led us to Legoland, California, which was really our first break. And, and if, if I can interject something briefly, that first year when we were a team and living together after I'd quit those jobs, we made a deal with a friend of Jonathan's who uh, allowed us full access to a facility where we could train. And we made a habit of Monday through Friday, almost without fail for our entire first year, we would go down to this facility and we would spend between four and eight hours, five days a week, Monday through Friday, juggling. So we were averaging around 30 hours a week of actual training together. And then on Friday night, we'd both go twist balloons in restaurants. We'd have gigs on Saturday and Sunday doing character work or whatnot. And then Monday would roll around and we'd do it again. And it took about a year of doing that to develop our foundation. We went to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival in 98 and learned a tremendous amount there, came back from that. And that's when we went and auditioned at the theme park. And it was our first real audition. We'd been doing it together about a year. And that contract picked up. They booked us for a six-month interim to start. They liked us. They booked us for another six months. Ultimately, they kept us for three years. And that's really where we, we cut our teeth. And I did the math, actually, just last night. And we were doing six 20-minute shows a day, five days a week, pretty solid for about three years. So we probably did, I mean, certainly they were not big shows, they were not theatrical productions, but we did a, over 4,000 shows together at the theme park in that three years. Now, were these shows outdoors, like on the street, like line relief, or were you in a little theater, 
what was sort of the experience and the atmosphere like at that time at Legoland? All it was, <laughs> yeah, it was strolling. It was theater. They would have us in for special events. If a show went down, we would cover the show. There was a lot of things, but there was a lot of streetmosphere type stuff. And you would think we would be adept street performers from all that time. We were so focused on the technical aspects that we didn't really get the whole performance aspects as much as we do now. So uh, we, we did a lot of monster tricks out there, but, but it was a huge development. That's where we laid our foundation skills and really developed as a team. Well, they always say that you need 10,000 hours or maybe 10,000 shows. And there's always a situation in most successful jugglers' lives where they crank out a ton of shows. Yep. And that's how you yeah. really get that comfort level of being in front of people, being able to do tricks consistently in front of an audience. I think nowadays we have a lot of jugglers who make videos and the art of actually performing in front of people in a live situation is being lost a little bit. Do you think that's the same? Do you see that, Jonathan, or is, am I alone in that? I think that we are afforded now the luxury of all of those. Because of, because of YouTube and stuff, guys like Josh Horton can make incredible YouTube videos, and it's, that's not something that he can do on an everyday basis, but he's developing a fan base that's outside of just the subculture of juggling itself. And then there, there's tons of great jugglers who are transitioning from the video stuff. Wes Peden, they, they do do performances, and Jay Gilligan, all those guys are still pushing the envelope. And, you know, I really enjoy it. Emil Dahl, Emil Dahl, sorry. We, we actually performed with him and nine, he flashed nine clubs. Like, but aside from that, his actual act he does on stage is, is really freaking awesome. With the magnets? Yeah, with the magnets. And yeah, it's original stuff that is just because he is so technically skilled, it's really next level stuff. Oh, yeah, I got to work with him in Israel. The thing about Emil Dahl, people wonder why how he flashed nine clubs. His hands are huge. <laughs> he's a, he's a he giant. Just, and, that's, and that's why I've never done it. I have tiny hands. Yeah, I, you know, <laughs> me too. That's the only thing that held me back, I think, was uh, <laughs> my glove size was not big enough. So you're, getting, so you're getting this experience at Legoland. Now, at a certain point, did you decide, uh, Bill, that, okay, we need to move on from here? Or did something happen where you were asked to move on? How'd you go from Legoland to the next phase of your adventure? So we settled in at Legoland for the three years. And anytime you settle in for that long in one place, it will start to feel like a grind. It was a wonderful environment. It was a great place for our, us to develop. And it was too good for us to leave, even though deep down we knew we were ready for the next thing, whatever that would be. As unfortunate as it was, the catalyst was thrust upon us in that 9-11 happened. And the theme park numbers just plummeted. There were days where seven people were in the park, eight oh. people in the park, 12 people in the park. And after about a month and a half of this, there was a team-wide park meeting, and they did a pretty intense layoff. They eliminated essentially the entire entertainment department, and we were, of course, part of that elimination. And I remember we went into a counseling session for people who were essentially being let go They'd, they'd had this guy drive down from L.A., so he'd driven an hour and a half or whatever from L.A. down to San Diego that morning to counsel us. And we were sort of celebrating in the office because even though we were being laid off, we were now free to pursue whatever the next thing was. And we'd actually all just been talking about going snowboarding in Mammoth and thought there was no way we could all get the time off. And we thought right there in the office, we realized we're going to Mammoth to go snowboarding. So it had a strange celebratory sense, even though we were losing really a quite phenomenal gig. So I remember you guys had like full, I met you guys around that time because I was doing a cruise ship out of San Diego. And you were like full yeah. medical and actually like a pension plan and like a real job almost. It was, it's still to this day is one of the best gigs we've ever had. <laughs> <laughs> well, I like amusement park work. And if people listening to this podcast are interested in working in amusement parks. Do you think that's still a good entry position nowadays? Yeah, for sure. There's there's lots of people doing parks still. And and I will say that Legoland has rebounded and they have an entertainment department now. And Bobby Hartman, um, I know, was has been performing there for off and on for years and stuff. I don't I don't 
I don't know if he's still there, but I mean, I know that they have hired jugglers still. So. I think Bobby's in a hospitality position now. Uh, like he shows guests around the park. Uh, and he, like if a, if a celebrity comes in, like Julia Roberts or somebody with her family, he's the one uh, who shows them around. That seems like a pretty sweet gig. So good, <laughs> good for Bobby, you know? Yeah. So, Bill, where'd you go after the uh, this, this? Did you first go snowboarding in Mammoth? Was that the first thing? So one of the first things we did is we all went uh, snowboarding in Mammoth. And then we came back and they were still paying us basically unemployment for, for a number of months, which was just quite the boon because it allowed us to continue training and figure out things that, that we had not taken advantage of. We still didn't have a demo video. We were wrestling extensively with getting a demo video out, um, having a lot of computer problems, and we didn't have a website. We had not learned to promote ourselves. We still didn't really have a show. We could do 20 to 30 minutes tops and it was still very focused around the technical juggling. I was not doing comedy per se at all still at that point. Jonathan's always been naturally funny, so he would carry the shows in that sense. And then um, we went through basically a year of not really having much. We surfed a lot. We trained a lot. We were on a regular. Basically, we'd go and juggle for two hours a day, weightlift and train for two hours a day. And then we would go surfing or mountain biking. We were both in the best shape of our lives. Oh, and we were rock climbing at the time. Jonathan was 155 pounds, I think. And I was, I was 165. So we were, we were unbelievably slim and trim and having really quite the blast, but not really figuring out how to get the next gig. And then luckily, we got a call sort of last minute to do a fill-in at Circus Circus in Reno, Nevada. And to put it in perspective, they called us for four weeks and we moved from San Diego to Reno, Nevada for a four-week gig. That's how meager our prospects were at the time in San Diego. We'd been working with the Fern Street Circus intermittently, which was great. They, uh, they would throw us some gigs sometimes, and we were very thankful for that. But we just weren't getting the gigs in San Diego the way we needed. And Jonathan, what was your background in comedy? Was that something you were always interested in? Had you done any theater in, in school, or had you uh, done any comedy writing before the juggling? I just loved comedy. I knew it was something that I really wanted to pursue. And I, from the time I was a kid, people say, I want to grow up and be a doctor. I wanted to grow up and be a comedian. I just always wrote, I mean, comedy. And, and when I was a kid, obviously, it was very juvenile and basic stuff. But comedy is something that you work at and you work at. And I think that it's something, you know, some like Bill talks about not being natural at it, but it's just, it's a muscle. If you keep working at it, I wrote a book called killer comedy. And I talk a little bit about, about some of the things that I used for comedy writing. Scotty Meltzer has done a ton of great stuff and there's tons of resources now for people who want to write comedy there's a book called Zen and the Art of Stand-Up Comedy by Jay Sankey, which is a phenomenal book, and there's tons of resources. I hope I answered your question. Were there any special comedians who you watched that really inspired you uh, before the juggling? Richard Pryor. There's, and now I'm blanking on his name, the guy, um, he actually is one of the judges on America's Got Talent. Howie Mandel? Howie. Howie Mandel. I watched a special of his and I was like, I need to do that. Mm. And then Gallagher, I mean, both Bill and I have really been inspired by Gallagher. A lot of people give him crap, but he wrote, I think, nine or ten hour-long specials by himself. The guy's done ten hours of original material on television. And a good live performer. I got to see him a couple of times, got to meet him, and he put on a heck of a show. I mean, big props, comedy. He was an entertainer. And maybe he didn't, maybe grow with the times as well as he could have. But in a certain time, a certain era, Gallagher was a king for sure. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I'm still a big fan. In fact, I got to do a show last night. We'd just come off of two weeks on a, on a cruise. I flew back, landed around midnight, got to bed, woke up, and then I had a show at, uh, with uh, Black Diamond Burlesque last night for their Valentine's show, which was awesome. And for me, it was the chance to, I've been working on this new pie routine. And at one point I would pie a volunteer and then also was shooting silly string out all over the crowd. And I thought it was my proudest Gallagher moment because I've always been a fan of 
his splash act style and some of the more uh, modern acts that are using the splash act. I, I just wish there was a way that we could bring more of that back because I, I just love the the three-dimensional interaction with the audience where they're actually getting to feel what's happening or you're spraying them with water. It just, I, I think it's so neat to break that fourth wall. I like that idea. What do you call it, a splatter act? Is that is that the name you called it? I, I call them splash acts. Oh, splash acts. Okay. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. That's a good idea. And so you're at, you're at Circus Circus. If we can get back to that. Was that when you were getting ready to compete at the IJA? We actually, when we were performing at uh, the Reno Circus Circus, we were practicing for that. We had competed the two years previous to that, and both times we received the silver medal. Uh, the first time we were really happy to get the silver medal. The second time it's like, you're the first loser. That's mm -hmm. kind of how we felt. Right. And and that's not the first year the twins, the uh, LaSalle, LaSalle brothers, brothers. were unbelievably good to get a silver that year we felt that was like second gold because they were so good they deserved it and then the second time was saccade greg kennedy and stuff and they had a great act we had we had a great act planned and we just kind of defeated ourselves by being stressed out the reno act we got a lot of opportunity to run our routine in front of a live audience and then Anthony Gatto, our contract ended, and Anthony Gatto came in and started performing. So we actually became friends with him, but he didn't want to, because he was performing in the Cascade of Stars show, he didn't want to show everyone his act because it was in Reno. Right. So we actually went in uh, a couple days before, I think even a day or two into the festival, and we're performing on the Midway. So we got to run our show 12 times on the Midway and then one time um, at an outdoor event. And we ran it flawlessly on all those shows. And that led us into the championships. And if anyone, for those of you who are listening to the podcast, we kind of did a spoof that year. Just more, we had Butterfly Man on stage. We had fake cheerleaders. We had towel girls. We had Ben Jennings wearing referee um, stuff. Matt Hall jumped out of the audience and tried to get an autograph actually during our competition routine. Uh, at the end of it, people carried us off. It was just something that we wanted to make more than just an, an act of us juggling. We wanted it to be a spectacle. And if I, if I can throw a little bit more into that. Special thanks and shout out to Mark McGuire, who at the time was booking all the entertainment at Circus Circus. Mm -hmm. He he saw something in us and he brought us in and he really gave us the first ever training we'd ever had. He actually sat us down, looked at what we were doing and said, well, why are you guys styling like this? Style like this. It's much warmer to the audience. And why are you doing this? And he helped us sculpt an actual routine that was pleasant on the eyes and not just two guys who really didn't know what they were doing, putting together a bunch of cool tricks. So he guided us through that, helped us develop the act. And then the night we actually performed for the actual championships, IJA, he was in the audience expecting us to do exactly what we'd been doing all this time on his stage. And he told me afterwards, it was really fun talking with him. He said, when you guys came out, I just kept thinking, what are you doing? What are you doing? They're blowing it. They're blowing it. And then as it developed and he saw what was happening, he said, I get it. I get it. He's like, I, I think they're going to win. And <laughs> seeing him get all excited was so, so fun. And then the judges were very kind. So yeah, we were, we were able to win the team's division and the individual's division. And I believe that was the first year you were hosting the three ball and three club competitions. Yeah. Yeah, we had individual prop competitions that lasted for a few years. You guys also want the people's choice. I mean, you, you kind of rock that convention. You were the guys of that convention. Well, yeah, so I won the three ball in your in your competition for the three object or three ball prop mm -hmm. competition. And then Jonathan won the bounce competition. And then, yes, the people's choice as well. So we were absolutely flabbergasted. And that all led directly into the next evolution of what we were started doing, which was all of our goals were sort of accomplished that one night. Uh, all of our juggling goals, there was not going to be, I didn't need to go back the next year and try to compete in individuals. We'd done that too. So I felt personally kind of cast adrift because I thought I would just be training for another year. But 
there we are, we'd won that. Now what do we do with ourselves? We sat down and said, now we have to really make a living at this. Let's develop a show. And we stopped really working on the technical juggling aspects and started developing a show and really went dark for much longer than we expected. We planned to separate ourselves from the juggling community for a short time to develop a show. And then it just sort of all blew up at once. We met a great agent at the championships that led us into our college work. We started doing a ton of colleges that led to the ships that led to the military tours. And it's only really just now in the last year or year and a half that we finally started to get to go back to juggling competitions and conventions and get back into it. So we're really excited to be getting back into it. And and on that note, we are going back to the IJA this year. We're going to be in the same show as you, Dan. We're going to be in the opening show. The welcome show. Yeah. Well, that'd be great. I haven't been in a long time. I don't think you guys have been in for a long time. When was the last IGA you went to? 2003. Wow. Okay, because I think mine was like 2011 maybe or something like that. You guys also, it seems like for some ways, I know you've been working steady, but you sort of disappeared from the scene like you were talking about. You guys were just working solid. What, yep. what were the colleges like back then and, and what were some of the experiences you had? in these early college years? We did colleges for, we had a good run. We did a lot of showcasing uh, for colleges and that led to a ton of work. We did a couple hundred different colleges all over the United States and it was a great run. I mean, you do your own show. Sometimes it's just phenomenal. You show up, you have a beautiful theater with a crew. And then there's other times when you show up and you're in the quad and you're competing against a hot dog stand and a cotton candy booth. And so there's, there's with everything, there's positives and negatives. I think we really cut our chops doing colleges because when you're in a beautiful theater, it's easy to be good. Easier, rather. Sure. When you are competing against tons of distractions and out in the sun, you really find out, is this good? Does this draw people in? So yeah, it really gave us a challenge and it was a great run. Do you feel as if the college market has, has been diminished since then? I haven't really been too aware of it. I know there are still some jugglers out there, but it doesn't seem like it was like during its peak. Has it you know, uh, not as good anymore? I think the budgets have changed. They're focusing more on novelty acts, like make your own sandals, make your own keychains and stuff. Wow. And sadly, I think live entertainment has, as far as the colleges are concerned, has kind of taken a back seat. I think there'll be a resurgence at some point. Uh, if, if I can throw in a comment there, too. Back in the day, you could get up there and swallow a sword or juggle a chainsaw or, or do some amazing trick. And everybody said, wow, because they just weren't exposed to it in the same ways that they are now. They can sit in their chair and watch you on stage sword swallow or they can sit in their chair on their phone and watch somebody jump from space wearing a Red Bull outfit and come careening in it. I don't know even how fast the guy was falling, but they can see someone literally jump from a weather balloon in space and skydive back to Earth. And you just simply can't compete with that in a, in a live show in awe factor. So that's, that's one of the really important things we've been focusing on is it's not so much about the tricks and the quote-unquote awe factor as it is about the presentation and how you're connecting with your crowd. I feel that as a team, we are going through a massive, we're ready for another push, another big jump and a new evolution in our development as performers. Well, that sounds great. It seems like you've come across some real truths where as things become more commonplace, and like you said, even people nowadays have the opportunity to sort of watch something while you're performing. Well, I'm going to check right. my, my smartphone or before... Yeah. They watched you or they sat there and looked off into space. Yep. So even their ability to command their focus has changed so dramatically. I feel kind of bad for the people starting off today. It's definitely a different era and it's important to keep reinventing yourself. And I think you guys are going down a good track there. I like the way that sounds. We're, we're working on some new stuff and even the way we're looking now is more character based. I, I don't know if you're familiar with Boy with uh, Tape on His Face. Oh, of course. But guys like that, Piff the Magic Dragon, mm -hmm. we're looking at that and going, you know what? We really feel that that hasn't been pushed far enough with what we do. So uh, we're working on some new stuff. Part of our We're working on a new routine. It's called Billy and Johnny. It's a step away from Rootberry. 
because we have a very, in our opinion, a very workable show. It works for a ton of audiences, but it's not challenging for the audience. We want in, you know, we've done 20 years almost now as Rootberry, and we want our next 20 years to be focused on important things. And I mean, if you look at, I know you've mentioned in other podcasts about juggling being like the kids table, mm-hmm. but I don't feel that way. I don't feel that we're stuck in that way, if you look at all the Cirque performers like Victor Key and Pat McGuire, Greg Kennedy, all those guys, I think they have brought juggling to an incredibly large audience via Cirque. And I, I just, if you look at like the top guy in acting, or in this case, Sandra Bullock, that you mentioned getting millions and millions of dollars, but then if you look at the passing zone, they've done incredibly well with juggling you guys have done incredibly well i mean and so have we and i think we can't discount that and we can't compare that to the guy on the street in the same way that we wouldn't compare an open mic comedian to george carlin well my point was that i don't look at myself as a juggler as the only thing i see myself as being part of entertainment yeah it's an entertainment vehicle If you look at the whole world of entertainment being where you have actors who can't get a job and have to bust tables, and you have the $20 million megastars, as jugglers, I feel the Raspini brothers, you guys, Passing Zone, have all done very, very well. But in the bigger picture of entertainment, if the top is 100%, then the exposure we've gotten and the money we've made is more towards the bottom, more towards 10%. So it seems like you can be successful as a juggler. Even the most successful jugglers are still not household names. That's, Agreed. That's, uh, I, we actually have a theory on that, which is what we're hoping to test in the next few years as we develop. And that is what we noticed about our show is though it was entertaining, though it was very accessible, though it was very good for just about any audience, people were leaving the theater with no idea who we are. Mm-hmm. We're just two happy-go-lucky guys who've never had a bad day in their life, never struggled to get where they're at. And and that whole side of us has been lost. They don't see the unbelievable struggle that it took for us to get here and and the sacrifices that were made to make this happen. And it, it suddenly became apparent to me that that's our own fault. We have not put ourselves into the show in a way that makes it real. We are just two fun, happy guys. And not that we don't want to be fun and happy and and produce something that's really fun for the audience, but we want to have a voice. We want to have an impact. If you think about the original jester, medieval ages kind of thing, wasn't it sort of the job of the comedian or the jester to say the king is naked and to put his neck out there, even though he might be beheaded if he made the monarch angry? It was sort of the job of these people to say what no one else could. And I'm feeling that responsibility as an artist now. It's not about just going out there and doing another trick. And it's not even about doing, it's it's about having that voice and what can we convey. And, and to bring it back to Gallagher, I was watching one of his specials not long ago, and it was right after I'd thought of this. And he did this little poem about rivers and how rivers are being polluted. And at the time, that was a an issue that was on his mind and he thought it was important enough to do a routine about. And I thought we don't have anything even that that level of where we're talking about things that are what we feel are important. So we're we're trying to find a fun, interesting, educational way to to actually say the things we think are important now. I think that there's always a person or a group that sort of rises above. If you look at like Evil Knievel, there were no famous motorcycle stuntmen. Or if you look at Arnold Schwarzenegger, there were no famous bodybuilders or Howard Stern and radio. So I think there is a place for the act or the person who understands the need to personify juggling, like you're talking about. Like it's not just we saw a juggler. It has to be we saw this juggler. We saw this act. If only we could get it that good. They usually call us, there's the magicians. Oh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Right, Weren't you the guys who did that chainsaw ballet? Like, yeah, I mean, we're two guys who juggle. But us in the passing zone are not exactly... uh... We've had people argue with us and tell us, they're like, yeah, we saw you guys do this chainsaw ballet thing. And we'd say, oh, that's (laughs) that's not us. 
that's our friends the passing zone and they'll go they'll go nah we saw you guys do it and it's like no no honestly we know those guys they're friends of ours it, <laughs> it wasn't us it wasn't <laughs> us and they're like and they like kind of like wink at us like yeah we know the truth <laughs> now you guys have created a bit of an identity through youtube is that something you're still actively pursuing and what were your experiences like there I primarily did a lot of YouTube videos. I convinced Bill to help me out for a while. It was good. We monetized our videos through a system called the Partner Program. Now YouTube allows everyone to monetize their videos no matter what. You just have to use royalty-free music and all that stuff. But back then, very few people were able to do it, and you had to go through an application process. You had to make videos on a steady basis and stuff. So, yeah, it was something we did for a while. It was a really nice creative outlet because you could get an idea, make a video, and then because we had a little bit of a fan base then, we would get instant feedback on our videos. And I think it was really fun. I learned a lot about video editing and marketing and stuff. Since then, the YouTube world has changed tremendously. The last statistic I heard is that they're making 24 hours of video every second for YouTube people, creators. Wow. And wow. so you're just, unless you're making super cutting edge stuff, you can just be lost in the melee of all the stuff that's being created. And unfortunately, not everything that people are watching is great. And even if you make something great, you still have to know how to market it and get it put up on BuzzFeed and all these different things. And we never really had a viral video. We've had a couple knife throwing videos that have several hundred thousand views, but it's more, we never had that viral video. Uh, we're gonna make a bunch of videos next month. We're in Arizona doing some gigs. And yeah, it's not something we've given up on. I really enjoy the medium still, and it's really fun. I was gonna say, one of the things we've struggled with is we have a unbelievable number of ideas and we can do anything, but we can't do everything. So picking out and choosing from the ideas we get, which ones are most desirable to pursue, it has been, sometimes it's too much of a good thing to have so many ideas. So we're trying to focus that in a little bit more. And what venues do you see yourselves going into? Is this be more of a, a theatrical type of show, like for performing arts or theaters? We absolutely do. We, When you work on the cruise ships, it's difficult to develop a fan base because the people are already cruising and stuff. We want to, in the latter part of our career, in other words, in the next 20 years, we want to not only develop a fan base, we want to develop a following and start renting theaters and doing more stuff that we feel challenges the audience and makes them grow as people. And I mean, we're looking towards the next step, like how can we help people? There's tons of stuff in the world that people don't have clean water. And it's like, we're arguing over this and that. And it's like, but there's people who are really hurting. If we can, through our show, I guess, make people aware of things that it's just something we want to pursue. And again, it's not something that comes overnight for us. It's something we're going to develop over the next several years. We've been to 70 countries now. We've been to all 50 states. We've done ships and we've done military tours so we've gotten to see a, a diversity of places in the world and exposure to cultures in the world and things and stories that we understand just the average person does not get to do and that has flavored our perspective every time you visit a new country and you experience new cultures it really takes you aback and makes you question some of the things you take for granted it makes you question some of the things that you you really that you think are firm truths about humanity in general, and then sometimes you have to step back. So we want to share those experiences in a very real way, the stories and that we've had. We, we actually got to do a show recently, and what we did is we took 40 of our favorite stories and we homogenized them down to just one or one and a half, one or two sentences. And then we put them in a jar and we literally let audience members pick one of the stories from the jar and whatever story they would pick, we would just tell on stage as part of our show, not knowing which stories would be picked and letting the flow be very natural. And it was fun. It, just sitting with the audience and sharing those moments, it broke that wall. It was more like being in our living room chatting with friends rather than doing a theatrical production. 
And if I were to reach in that jar and pick out one story about the military tours, and are we talking USO tours? We worked with MWR, which is the mil or the uh, the Navy version of USO. Mm, okay. So we've worked with them, and if they were to pick out one of the stories from the military tours, well, I I'll jump in with one. We did we flew into Kosovo, Ooh. which at the time was not an independent nation. And we were escorted via two Hummers with 50 caliber machine guns onto a base. And because it was very tense politically there, and they had so much so that they had taken the glass out of the windows and they had stacked hay. It was a very rough time for the people in Kosovo. We got onto the military base. They gave us directions don't leave the base for any reason we had to do terrorist awareness training in order to go on this and then as soon as we got done with our briefing our driver said oh we're going off the base and he took us to macedonia to go to an irish pub we've had some amazing adventures uh, with the military tours and travel in general now were you guys picture takers did you get uh, some snapshots of these different places because that would be a nice sort of audio-visual type of representation of these travels? We've taken pictures on and off of everything over the years. My, my iPhoto is just, it takes forever to open just because there are so many random photos. I really should go through it and slim it down a little bit. But uh, yeah, we absolutely take photos we've, of the journeys. We've been to Guantanamo Bay twice. We've seen Camp X-Ray. We've had amazing adventures. We've performed a live show on Guantanamo Bay for active duty military, and the only light source we had for our entire show was a single spotlight. The good thing is you guys seem to have always maintained a really close friendship, like you get to share these adventures together. Uh, Bill, do you, think do you think there's a secret to the, the long-lasting nature of your guys' friendship? Absolutely. We are incredibly like-minded. Uh, Jonathan recently took the Myers-Briggs temperament test. I don't know if you're familiar. No. Uh, it, it's a... My mom studied it a lot. She was really interested in psychology, so I grew up with it. But it's a it's a temperament test that divides people into categories based on introversion, extroversion, judgment versus perception, and thinking versus feeling, et cetera, et cetera. And when Jonathan took it, I was not surprised to see that we actually shared almost all of the same letters, the only exception being him being extroverted, me being introverted. I think that has helped tremendously just that we view the world in a very similar way and the, the Myers-Briggs also divides people by the percentage of the population that falls under certain categories. And both of our particular temperaments are quite rare, falling into the like one or two percentile. So uh, just finding someone who is so like-minded ha has been hugely beneficial, I think, in, in allowing us to, to stay a team for 19 years. And I will further on that and say that being, doing what you want in life Doing, doing what you want all the time as a single person or a solo person is easy. Doing something with a married, my wife and I, there's constantly things that we have that she'll have an idea and I go, okay, I have to consider that. I'm no longer a solo person. And then when you, you're in a juggling team, you have to say to yourself, hey, is this fight w worth fighting? I know what you're saying. I mean, I think for me, there's different kinds of people. There are people who are escalators. Like they can take a small thing and make it into a big thing. Next thing you know, you're both at odds with each other. And sometimes in a marriage or a team, a juggling team, you have to capitulate. You have to agree to sort of say, well, this isn't what I would do if I was by myself, but I'm in a team. Everything that word entails. And the flip side of that is I'm, I'll use my marriage as an example. I'm better than, with my wife than I am without her. I'm a better person. She makes me a better person. And Bill makes me a better person, and it makes us a better show. All of that, all of our history and all those shared experiences make us into a better team. And we, you know, we work on the cruise ships with a lot of solo acts, and they're always like, oh, well, at least you guys have each other. And that's not always easy, but it's true. We've always had a resounding board. You always have someone, hey, here's a comedy idea I have. And they might not see the vision. And so in those instances, you have to say, no, I really believe in this idea. I'm going to pursue it. And sometimes it doesn't work out. Sometimes it does. 
we've also had a really good balance of how we collaborate on things. And we sort of have just developed a system where there are times where one of us will pursue something separately versus when we collaborate towards a common goal. Or sometimes we'll work on something on our own, then bring it to the table once it does find its legs and incorporate the other person into it in some way so that it becomes a team bit. Yeah, I think it's important when you have a team to sort of understand the division of labor, meaning like it's not like I'm going to do 50% of the comedy, you're going to do 50% of the comedy. Each person has their own strength. And if you kind of exploit that, not expect the person to do something they're not good at or don't want to do, as long as they do what they're good at and bring something to the team, I think you can kind of work out a really good working relationship if you understand that division of labor. Is one of you more of the technical like builder and one of you is more of the I guess, Jonathan, you'd probably do more of the comedy. And Bill, are you more of the technical side? I would say that's correct. But we both build props and we both write comedy at this point. We've developed our skills in that way. I would still say that I'm a little more polished in comedy writing. But the flip side of that is Bill's a way better technical juggler and he's a a better builder than me. We have a routine, our pie routine, that was inspired by... Mark Hayward's Wombat Trap. And the reason why I bring that up in the interview is because if you saw Mark Hayward do his Wombat Trap in a live show and then we were the next act, you would have no idea that it was inspired by his bit because we have made it completely our own. And I don't even know if Mark Hayward knows that our pie-in-the-face routine was inspired by his wombat trap, but that's something that Bill thought of for three years before it ever went into the show. And then finally, he, I guess, had an epiphany about how to actually make the mechanism work and everything. And it, yeah, it's it's one of our, I think, one of our funnier acts. Well, that's always the best best way to come up with something is very few things are what you would call organic creativity. Meaning they came from nowhere, like a, like a bolt from the sky. Right, Most right. things are inspired by something. And if that person who inspires it can't even recognize it came from that person, that's what I guess Scotty Mulcher would call the highest hierarchy of not stealing, but inspiration. Right. And sometimes it does take years to percolate and finally the subconscious takes over and the idea comes and voila, you have a great new routine. And I will say of Scotty Melter, he was a catalyst for us because because of what he said in his comedy writing workshops, hey, if you can do your act in the same show as that they're doing their act, then you're pretty much good to go. And I'm paraphrasing, of course, but I look at like the bounce piano and there's so many guys doing it now. And it's like, Dan, Dan came up with that. I'm a big believer that's wrong, that the people to do that. There's only been a couple of really innovative things. You can take the idea behind it and say, I want to make music right. some type of juggling. Right. But just sort of jack the piano. Like, are you guys familiar with our bowling ball routine where we get the guy from the audience and put him on the mini trampoline? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's a great routine. That's, that's air jazz. Ah. I saw air jazz do three beach balls where one of them was on their back. I think it was Peter on his back. Ah. And Kazai and, and John were on either end. They're doing, they're doing this beautiful pattern where they throw the ball down. Interesting. And since there's only two of us, I thought, well, what's going to be that third person? And so it had to be a mini trampoline. I thought, well, we can't use beach balls. So it right. had to be bowling balls. And every once in a while, I set myself like a problem in my head. I call it directed thought. And my thought was, how else can you put someone in the middle of a pattern? Because everybody was like throwing clubs around somebody or throwing knives around somebody in just a typical passing pattern. So in my subconscious mind, I kept thinking, how can we put someone else in the middle? So we start doing this pattern. I started thinking, wait a minute. I think we could fit someone in here straddling the mini trampoline with the bowling balls going between their legs and back over their head. So certainly if Air Jazz saw that, they wouldn't be like, oh my God, they stole our beach ball routine. Right, for sure. But without that influence, without those convergence of ideas. So I think what you guys are onto is really smart and really, uh, it bodes well for the future of you guys. Thanks. Well, that, that would be an indicator of some of the training we have picked up. Uh, again, special thanks to Scotty Meltzer because he has definitely guided us through his workshops over the years and has always made time if I had questions or whatnot to take time and discuss with me, as have you, Dan. We've really enjoyed 
Uh, we saw you on the pier just last year, I think, and we had a really good conversation with you. And I got to bounce some of the ideas that we've been having. And you told me, uh, I'll never forget, it's one of my favorite stories. You told me about, uh, I don't know who it was, but you said there was a couple of guys who had this idea oh, yeah. of wearing full suits of armor <laughs> yeah. and, and riding unicycles. And then they were going to fight with chainsaws because they had full armor. They could actually hit each other with the chainsaws. The sparks would fly off. And correct us right. if you're wrong. Did you say to them, like, I'll pay you $1,000 or something if you ever actually do that? Well, it's been a bit exaggerated. I did say I'll bet you $100 you never oh. perform it once. <laughs> Not even once. You do it once in front of people. That's the problem is, like, if you're talking about what ideas should you pursue, it's really good to kind of knock off the ones that are doable first. Right. Right. And knock off the ones that you can at least bring into reality. I was working with a guy once, uh, another juggler, and he was telling me about this idea. And he's like... This idea kills. I go, so you've done it. He goes, oh, no, but I know it kills. I go, you don't know it kills. Get it out in front of people in some raw form. Right. At least you can see the reality of it. Yeah. So for, for, for me, I, I will freely admit that believing in my ideas is one of my most difficult things. And possibly this is because I'm very introverted. So I take it very personally. I shouldn't. But when my ideas go out there and flop, it it's very painful to me. And I think that's one of the other things that Jonathan really, really benefits me in is he helps me to believe in a lot of my ideas enough to get them out there and try them. And I'm sure Bill will agree with me. The part about that is if you do have that, the thing is you have to think to yourself, what is the worst that can happen? I can fail. And the reality is fail, failure is not the end. It's just a blip on the radar of your life. If you let people decide your own path, then you don't become your own person. You don't become your own man. And so with Bill, he'll say, oh, I have this idea. And I'll say, oh, man, that's really funny. And he'll say, oh, okay. And then he won't do it. And I'll say, if you don't do that idea, I will. I'll go to an open mic and I'll bust it out. I just don't care. Meaning I, I do want it to succeed, but I just – if it doesn't work or if it needs adjustment, I will do that. And Bill comes well, up with great ideas and I'll be like, do that, do that bit. <laughs> I can actually extrapolate on that. I remember when I was first finding my voice, we were out to dinner with a bunch of people once and Jonathan was sitting next to me and I would think of something funny. So I would whisper it to him. <laughs> and I remember there was specifically, I, I whispered something to him and he said it to the group and everyone laughed. And then I whispered something else to him a minute later. He said it to the group and everyone laughed. Then I whispered something else to him. He said it to the whole group and it got nothing. <laughs> and then he, he looked at me. He looked me right in the eyes, shrugged his shoulders like, eh, like sometimes they don't go. And <laughs> but it was such a strong lesson to say, yeah, you throw it out there. You see what it does. And, and, and even still, I'm learning that. And last night I have this, I probably have 20 pages written for this new thing I'm developing. And I was committed to doing it last night. I'd already told the producer I was doing it, so I couldn't back out. And I was debilitatingly stressed out uh, about doing it because it was so far from ready. It was so far from completion. I hadn't even had a chance to rehearse it. And I realized it is so far from ready right now. And even if I had two more weeks of regular rehearsing to work on it, it would still be so far from ready. And then I extrapolated it further and said, wait a second, we've got things in the show that we've been doing for 10 years that we're relatively happy with, that if I were to look at them on paper, I would still say, these are not complete. So nothing is ever complete. And it seems so obvious, but it's still something I, I realize as a performer, even after almost 20 years. Well, my feeling is that if you have an idea and you think it's a good idea, you have to pursue it until it proves itself to be a bad idea. Because then you can let it go. I think the universe knows if you want to have ideas and you say, well, I had this idea. I think it's good. I don't do it. The universe knows. Like, why should I send this guy more ideas? He's not even doing the good ones he's already thought of. So I don't mind when an idea fails. Because then I can go like, okay, my mind doesn't have to work on that one anymore. Sometimes it's a finesse thing where you go, it kind of worked. But sometimes you go like, that just doesn't work. Right. And your you mind is now free for the next thing. So... But that it definitely does. Like you said, it leads you on to your next thing. And that and it may be several levels of development before you come up with something that you go, oh, wow, this is it. This is where that led. And yeah, pe people say, oh, how did you think of this routine? And I go, oh, I, I don't know. There was like 20 developments before it led to that. 
<laughs> well, I'm excited to see where you guys are going to go from here. I think we've overshot the end because we started getting into some really interesting conversations about creativity and belief and all the things I hope you will share more as you do these live shows. I think you really can impact people's lives and hopefully bring juggling into a whole new light. Thank you. We really appreciate you saying that. The one thing I do want to emphasize is I want to encourage your listeners to to pursue the people that they enjoy. There's three years I had this idea in my head that I couldn't be a fan of other people because I was somehow in the business. I mean, guys like I mentioned, you know, Boy With Tape On His Face, Emo Phillips, guys, Piff The Magic Dragon. I'm a fan. I really like their stuff. And it's like, I look at what they're doing and I go, okay, I need to do that myself. I just want to encourage your listeners to like, click on likes for the jugglers that they enjoy. And the other side of that is people's, if people are saying, oh, there's no good juggling acts or no good juggling acts come to our town, Get together with a local college. Bring in the acts you want to see. Find a way. There's a gauge in our industry of what people will pay to see. And if we say, oh, we want to see more jugglers or we want a famous juggler, we want to see where our industry goes, we need to support those, not only ourselves, but the entire subculture of juggling. I hope that doesn't sound pretentious. I just... No, it sounds very positive. I try to... When I go on Facebook or, or YouTube, if I like a video at all, I mean, it's so surprising when you see a video has 6,000 views and 80 likes. Yeah. And you go, that's a great video. That's a great juggler. Like yeah. uh, David Kane just put Eva Vida on TV and there's guys from Brazil and these guys with these wacky club styles. And I'm still a big fan. I, I still love juggling and I, I want to see juggling prosper. And that's flourish. awesome. So how about you, uh, Bill? Any last words you want to end with? Our message in our show has always been follow your dreams and it was just a brief little aside that we would always throw into every one of our shows and i think that still stands true and i think we're still going to stay true to that root vision even if we don't say it quite that way but uh yeah we're gonna uh, just basically encourage everyone to uh follow your dreams everybody has that something that they're afraid of or that they're not sure about or maybe i could have done this or maybe just do it I guess I should follow my own advice in that, in that when I'm writing new material, I just have to go and do it. So whatever whatever you're dreaming about out there, try it. Why not? Somebody once said that uh, if, you, if you're standing there paralyzed because you don't know what direction to go in because there's so many options, well, just start down any one of the paths, and the path will very quickly tell you if it's the right one. So listeners, live your dreams. And it was a dream to talk to Jonathan Root and Bill Berry of Team Root Berry. Thank you so much, guys. And... Uh, Best of luck in the future, and hopefully our paths will cross. Well, they'll cross in El Paso, and it'll be great to see yeah. you guys once again at the IJA. So thank you so much for being on the Drop Everything Podcast. Thanks, thank Dan, you, Dan, for having us. Well, thank you, listeners. I hope you enjoyed podcast number 26 of Drop Everything, my conversation with Jonathan Root and Bill Berry. Let's thank our sponsors one last time, the IJA, International Jugglers Association. Information about the IJA can be found at juggle.org. Let's thank me, Dan Holzman. Thank me by going to braindrizzles.com for all your coaching juggling needs. Both comedy and more comedy can be found at braindrizzles.com. Let's also thank my engineer, the lovely and talented Karen Holzman. Let's thank all you listeners for tuning in and hopefully subscribing on iTunes. If you want to leave a review, please make it five stars because that would be nice. All right. Until next time, drop everything except when you're juggling.